Let me invite you now to stand, and we'll turn to Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, and I'll read to you verses 8 through 13, which further delves into where I left off last week, the example of Christ and how loved we are and served, how much service Christ does for us, and in that service, how we together can serve others as we model the treatment that God has given us in the Savior. So we'll look at Christ as servant today and what that means for our relationships, for our church, for our life. So look with me in verse 8 and hear God's word. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again... Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in Him will the Gentiles have hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, as we look at this text... We pray, teach us, guide us by your Spirit that we together might rightly express as a body everything that was well and good in that ancient church in Rome. And we pray that by so doing, you would get the glory and the gospel would be proclaimed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There are two times that you really find out what the character of a person is. Two times you can kind of, if you're trying to size someone up, you know, your, your son or daughter or, or grandkid brings home that significant other and you are evaluating, don't tell anybody you're doing this, you are evaluating whether this is a good thing. You're going to keep your mouth shut, but you're evaluating quietly. And the two times you can find out everything you need to about a person is when they get what they don't want. When they get what they don't want. In other words, you're out to lunch and, you know, the waiter or waitress brings the food and it isn't what they order and that is just a wonderful diagnostic moment, whatever happens next. And the other time you can really find out about a person is when they meet the lowest member of your family. These, these members of our family usually have four legs. And when they meet, isn't that true? Yeah. When they meet your dog or your cat and how they respond, how they treat the animal is sometimes very indicative of their character. And who they are. You see, we find out about ourselves when we don't get what we want, how do we respond, and when we're interacting with 
the least of these, the least of these in our family. And you find out about the character of a person and whether or not they're a giving, sacrificing servant in terms of their character. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the King, the second person of the Trinity, is a servant. Look in verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant. To be a servant, and notice there you have the word Christ, so this is the appointed one of God, becoming a servant, and that combination there is both startling and somewhat scandalous that he who is the king above all kings serves the likes of us. And maybe we live in a context where we say, of course I should be served. Look at who I am. But the book of Romans instead takes us in a different direction, showing us really how unworthy we are of that service. And to be served in this way is both speaking about the fact that Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the magnitude of God's love for us is even though we fall short, He loves us by sending a Savior for us who serves us. You might define servanthood this way, not being concerned for yourself, not demanding for yourself. And we read in Mark 10:45, Jesus says of himself defining his ministry, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even he who was king of kings became a servant, and we'll look at how this applies to us because you see, remember Romans, there was this cosmopolitan church there in Rome, and he had Jew and Gentile coming together, two different ethnicities, two different religions coming together. How could they experience unity except in knowing Jesus as the servant Savior? We've talked a lot about, starting in chapter 14, with weaker, stronger brother, and we've talked about, you know, we don't always agree over everything. And in fact, churches have their most delicious and devastating conflicts, not over essentials, but over the secondary and tertiary beliefs and the great unifying factor through all of this is not that we believe the same over things like preaching style, worship style, church personality, mode of baptism. I'm thinking of secondary and tertiary things. Who you're rooting for this Sunday. There's differences. But if we concern ourselves to serve each other like Jesus served us, there's hope. There's wonderful hope that we will be united. So let's look at Jesus' servanthood here. And three points to make is first, he's a servant to the Jews. This is in verse 8. 
And we read in verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant. Now, the word used there for servant is the word that's transliterated into deacon. So Christ is a deacon, a servant. And in particular, he is a servant taking on this role to the circumcised, to the Jews. And he did this in order to, verse 8, to show God's truthfulness. So you can think of God's truthfulness like an attribute. Think of his truthfulness is an attribute, part of his character. And so Christ becoming a servant shows that God is true. It also shows as the fulfillment of God's promise and plan that everything that God said would happen has happened. He is true we can depend on him. And this truthfulness comes across, look at the end of verse 8, in confirming the promises given to the patriarchs. And what were those, who are those patriarchs? I mean, we can think of early on in Genesis from Adam through Abraham to Jacob and Joseph after him. These are the patriarchs and the promises that were made to them were kept in part from God's magnificent and marvelous plan of redemption. How unlikely that the king would become a servant to save us, that the perfect becomes associated with our sin yet was without sin and paid the penalty we owed to God, satisfying his wrath. And keeping these promises, and we can think about, if you turn over to Romans chapter 4, verse 3, we read there, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is much in Paul's mind as he writes, in terms of reminding the Romans that God kept his promises way back then. And here's the thing, if he kept his promises in the past, then we can depend and trust him now in our present. And if he has kept those promises in the past so we can trust him in the present, then we ought to be confident in the future that what we've experienced in being served by Jesus, we who are unlikely recipients of this service, receive this service as part of God's redemptive plan. And he does this with the Jews to keep all his promises. And we remember even back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And there is both a chronology and primacy in that declaration to the Jew first. God did not betray his people, and he is faithful and trustworthy. And so the servanthood of Christ stands as a testimony to all of God's faithfulness to his people, the Jews, and by extension to us too. So the very context of our lives, and, and this is something I really want you to get, 
the very con context of our life is not the world is out of control and, and we are hurtling towards our, our doom. The context of our life ought to be the fact that we're in the context of God's faithfulness and He has never broken His promises to us. You will not hear that on the news. And so we need to counteract that with the truth of the gospel. You know, have you had this happen to you before? Something breaks, and uh, maybe you save the instruction manual, so it breaks, and, and you think, you know, you try the, uh, you know, my first thing is always plug and unplug or turn it off, turn it on. And you get the instruction manual, you've tried that, and then you, you look, and, and what are you looking for? I'm looking for the warranty. And I don't know, I, I can't explain how they put these little chips in devices, and then they know they're like little timing chips, and as soon as it's out of warranty, that's when it breaks. <laughs> Isn't that true? And that is not like Christianity. That's not like our faith. It is for all time. We can trust in the promises and the certainty of He who became a servant for us. And in the life of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus shouts to us, God is faithful. Cutting through the clutter of this world, this society, whispering to you in your moments of busyness or stress or troubles to say, God is trustworthy. Look at Jesus. Our Christianity is not at some point going to break out of warranty or not be relevant. Always the context of our life is lived with a God who keeps His promises. So Jesus is a servant to the Jews. That's the point of verse 8. And the servanthood is the answer for bringing people together. To be so concerned for the well-being of others. To be so concerned for the growth, the spiritual growth of others that I contribute to a context of spiritual growth by the way I carry my convictions and we are all though different, united together in being served by a Savior. And so Jesus became a servant to the circumcised. He, he was a servant to the Jews. He is also a servant to the Gentiles. That's the next part of this passage here. Look in verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Now the Apostle Paul has as it were, laid out the redemptive plan of God, saying that it was God's intention all along to begin with the Jews and to go out to the nations. This was His plan all along, and we can trust Him in that plan. So J Jesus became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, that in the experience of that mercy they would understand and know the truth of the gospel. That takes us back, that mention of the word mercy takes us back to chapter 12, doesn't it? Verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and all of the unity of the church rests on 
It rests on our apprehension of the experience of God's mercy. How does the fact that we who are sinners, we who are sinners and unworthy of being served by Jesus, how do we apprehend, how do we know, how do we live and know deep within our bones, deep within our hearts, that we have been shown mercy, that we deserved wrath, but have been shown mercy in order that the Gentiles might glorify God, back to chapter 15, verse 9, glorify God for His mercy. In other words, the, and John Piper said this, he said, missions exist because worship doesn't. And I think that's brilliant. Missions exist because worship doesn't, because the end goal of this experience of God's mercy is that God's people would worship together. And the fact that Jew and Gentile come together to worship in the context of the church, that's an expression of the power of Jesus and the power of the gospel, which nullifies those little differences and those things that maybe we want to pick at each other and argue about, the secondary, tertiary things, the weaker bro brother things, the stronger brother things, all those find their place subsumed under the wonder of what he has done for us in Christ and the forgiveness that we have, the experience of that mercy and our apprehension of it. Now, in order, like any good, as it were, biblical scholar, the Apostle Paul, in his argument here, making the case, what does he do? He brings four proof texts to bear. Now, a proof text is... Show me where it is in the Bible. And that's what the Apostle Paul does here. He concludes that Christ became a servant both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, revealing God's overarching plan of redemption. And he pulls out four proof texts to show us this is true. And the first one comes to us, look in verse 9, see where it says, as it is written... So this is a quotation from the Old Testament because the Old Testament was Paul's Bible, canonized already. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Now, if you have a good ophthalmologist like I do, you can look in verse 9 and you see a tiny little footnote there. Do you see that? A tiny little letter. Maybe this is in your Bible or if you have a study Bible. It's a cross-reference. And in other words, what biblical scholars have done is they've analyzed the language of the uh, Pauline quote here, and they've pointed out for us, they've done a little extra work for us, they've pointed out where it comes from in Scripture. And so in my Bible, maybe you have a center column for references. In my Bible, these footnotes are indicated at the bottom. And we see it comes from 2 Samuel 2250. 2 Samuel 2250. What was going on there? Well, that's David extolling God's mercy and protection for him. It's towards the end of his life. Note that. And what he is doing is David is recognizing and looking forward to this aspect of God's redemptive plan working out, you see, David knew that the gospel was not going to stop with the Jews, but that it would go out 
to the Gentiles, and David points to that. And he is, in some sense, a patriarch in the Jewish structure of things. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. David envisions, he looks forward to, at the end of his life, a time when God's mercy would overflow with the Gentiles. And he, together with those who were vastly different than him, they would all be praising God together. There's another quotation, so that's the first one. Second one here is in verse 10, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And you look there, D, I go down. And I know the uh, other quotation had Psalm 1849 in it, but I think uh, this is similar language is used there in verse 9, so it could come from either place or both places. But the 2 Samuel 22.50, I think it makes more sense. And then in verse 10, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's coming from Deuteronomy 32.43. So this is at the end of Moses' life. It's the song of Moses, and Moses is celebrating the transition from uh, his leading of God's people to Joshua. They're about to enter the promised land. And so... Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people is an invitation for those who don't belong to belong and to come and to worship and everyone to be together, Jew and Gentile together. Now, both of these, 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, 50, end of David's life, and then Deuteronomy 32, 43, end of Moses' life, shows you the vision they had as older individuals facing the end of their life and how they caught a vision for God's mercy overflowing from the Jews to the Gentiles. And that's important and instructive to us because as we think about aging well, and usually when, when people talk about aging well, it's limited to physicality, just, just the physical side of things. I, I think that's important, um, you know, going to the doctor or whatever, taking care of yourself. Um, not as important as the spiritual side of things. And the longer you live, sometimes the, the more difficult things you see or happen, and it's important for us to live into, as we age, the wonder of what God has done for us. Yes, it's true that maybe the longer you live, the more you feel and experience the effects of the fall and, and living in a fallen world and your body even uh, manifesting the effects of the fall. However, the longer you live, the longer it is an opportunity to experience God's grace and mercy to you. And we ought to tell stories about His grace and His mercy in our life like David did, like Moses did. You know, at the end of both of their respective lives, they were extolling the faithfulness of God. And I think this is one way the older generation serves the younger, by telling stories and encouraging a visualization and see, seeing and communicating how God's service to us and His greatness uh, is communicated to that next generation. You know, I think about 
uh, today. You know, have you if you go to a football game and you're the home team and you're wearing your home team's jersey and you're kind of walking in from the the parking lot and you kind of see the the other team that your team will be playing and you kind of you kind of well well I do kind of mm. you know I don't say anything. But, you know, you, you sit with them. And then if that other team, because sometimes our team doesn't have the best fans and the other team buys up all the tickets and you're in a sea of that other color that you don't like and you're surrounded by them and maybe the game's going well for your team and you're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, oh you don't say anything, though. But, you know, sometimes that's kind of the attitude between the generations or between different people in churches. And I want us to envision instead that when you're walking out from the parking lot into the sanctuary, into the worship center, that we're all in this together. And that those different colored jerseys that we might be wearing and those tertiary and secondary issues that are so important to us, that we take off the jerseys for those teams and we, and we leave those outside and we come together in worship because God's greatness is infinitely better than our differences. Infinitely better than our differences. And to remember that even when we disagree or we have a conflict with somebody who's a fellow Christian, we would remember... Mm, I'm going to share heaven with that person. I should get this straight. I should, as Jesus did, be concerned for them, serve them, help them. So one way we talk about coming together is majoring on the majors, majoring on Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He served people. And one way the older generation serves the younger is Sharing these stories like Moses and David did of God's faithfulness and extolling his faithfulness and understanding the world is not, contrary to popular rumors, falling apart because we know who holds it together. And we together trust in the faithfulness of God. And then if you're part of the younger generation and interacting with the older generation, we ought to... I'm including myself in that younger generation. We ought to listen to these stories of faithfulness, understanding that the older generation has lost much more than we have and experienced the effects of the fall in uh, much more detrimental ways sometimes than we have. And both... All this requires is we get the focus off of ourselves and what we want and we start thinking about other people and serving other people in the midst of that. And so Jesus was a servant to the Jews. He's a servant to the Gentiles. And we have two more proof texts here. We see in verse 11, And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. This is from Psalm 117.1. David praising the Lord here. All the Gentiles and all the peoples extol him. There's a wonderful hospitality and openness to Christianity that says, it doesn't matter what sin you've committed or what lifestyle you're in. Come in. 
come into the church and catch a sense of the wonder of how the Savior has served you, that he might change your life. And this is part of how what we communicate by our life together. And that communication is very powerful and sometimes is much more powerful than any teaching or sermon, but that life example that is coming across. One more proof text brought here showing that God's intention all along was for Jews and Gentiles to be brought together in worship and salvation. Look in verse 12, and again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles have hope. Isaiah 11, 10, quoted there. And part of what the Apostle Paul has done here is he has taken a tour in these four proof texts he's brought. We've got the writings in 2 Samuel 22. We have the Psalms. We have um, the law the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, and we have the prophets in Isaiah. And so what the Apostle Paul has done is he has taken the tip of the iceberg. He's taken four passages of Scripture from the major divisions of the Jewish text, and he has picked one from each, saying this goes for the whole. And it's a powerful witness to God's faithfulness to us. And so wrapping up here, servant to the Jews, servant to the Gentiles, a servant to us. Look in verse 13. Paul ends with a benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. You know, believing should be something that brings us wonderful joy and peace because we have peace with God. And we have joy because we know that whatever happens to us, whatever befalls us, we're going to be okay in Jesus. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us that we might abound in hope. You see the context. When God's people come together and there is love and there is joy and there is peace and there's this unity experienced, and I think you experience it here in this local church, lowercase c. We're meant to experience this wonderful unity right here at Trinity. And as we experience that, it feels like love. And where we feel that love, we know hope. We know hope that we are never alone, that we always have someone with us to walk that difficult pathway or to celebrate with us the triumphs we have in our life. Jesus as servant, He is with us. He left heaven above to come down to this earth. He lowered himself, as it were, to come and to rescue us. And we most fully experience that in the church, the bride of Christ, where Jew and Gentile come together through Christ's serving and reconciling power. Where Texan and non-Texan come together? Yes. We're Republican and Democrat and Libertarian and gave up voting a long time ago, all come together? Yes. The people who believe government will help, the people who believe government won't help. All of us coming together. The traditional music people, yes. The modern music people, yes. 
all coming together because the Savior has brought us here as an expression of his mercy that we together might glorify God and worship him. Christ came to serve that we too might be a reconciling force and power in this world through the life that we live in the way we treat the least of these. Let's pray together. We thank you that though we are the least of these, you give us a wonderful dignity, O oh God, through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only do you give us dignity, you give us that which we cannot earn on our own and don't deserve, salvation. So we pray that in a fractured society, in a society that is just out for itself, we might lead the way as servants. And those under our care would be served well, just as we are served well by our Savior. And we pray this in His name. Amen.